Bible Geek Time with your host, uh, Robert M. Price, the Bible Geek himself. Um, let's see, I would like to take a bit of a different tack uh, today. I, rather than answer questions, which I hope to do again very, very soon, I got a bunch of them, I want to uh, share with you the work of some friends of mine, but first a, a shameless uh, bit of self-promotion. As many of you know from Facebook, my uh, book, um, Holy Fable, the Old Testament without, uh, what is it, the Old Testament undistorted by faith, it's volume one, uh, that is supposed to be coming out uh, in about a month, uh, and uh, then it won't take as long for the second volume, Holy Fable, uh, the New Testament Undistorted by Faith, to come out. Both of them are about 370 pages, uh, hard to believe, but uh, but uh, then again, who can be more, more verbose than me? Uh, so, uh, And I'm working hard on uh, my uh, most enjoyable uh, project, Bart Ehrman Interpreted, working on the chapter on Christology, and right now I'm reading some stuff about angel Christology in the early church, and where it came from, and whether it compromised monotheism, and oh boy, all sorts of fun stuff. Uh, so, okay, uh, uh, first I'd like to uh, suggest a book to you, seasonal, a seasonally appropriate one. Uh, this is for a uh, f my friend uh, Bob Siegel, who is a fellow conservative uh, politically uh, and uh, an evangelical Christian and a good pal of mine. I debated him some years ago, and uh, before the debate, we went out for pizza and we're discussing Star Trek and all kinds of uh, nerdy stuff we have in common and became uh, good buddies. The book is called The Dangerous Christmas ornament. Uh, and here's the, uh, the write up on it. What kid could resist the chance to wish for anything he wanted, even if he knew he was flirting with certain danger every single time he made the wish? Actually, isn't that kind of true about all wishes? Anyway, 12 year old Mike Owen has received a special present from his eccentric Aunt Lorene, a magic Christmas ornament. The ornament functions as a kind of Aladdin's lamp, but with a unique twist. Each time Mike's wish is granted, something bad happens to another person who was with him at the time the wish was spoken. This, of course, sets up a chain reaction of trouble and adventure. Weighing his own desires against the consequences to those around him, Mike learns a valuable lesson about choices and personal responsibility while experiencing a non-stop adventure with extremely unusual turns. By the way, if you hear a big crash in the background, it's my cat Merlin turning over the Christmas tree. I hope you won't be able to do it. Anyway, uh, this is available in paperback and as an ebook from Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Uh, so uh, Bob's a great guy, very, very creative, and uh, you might enjoy that. Good Christmas stuff. And don't tell me you don't... Uh, celebrate uh, Christmas. You know, I've, I've always found it uh, surprising that uh, uh, some people on the left say that uh, uh, Christmas is too religious and people on the right say it's too secularized. Well, my attitude has always been, what the heck, if it's secularized, I'll take it. Uh, after all, I know Jews and Buddhists who celebrate Christmas. It's, it's all about uh, Ebenezer Scrooge, isn't it? Uh, 
Anyhow, uh, you know, what's what's wrong with that? So, okay, um, now uh, what I want to do here is to uh, deal with something that someone asked about uh, just recently because it's been in the news again recently, namely the uh, lead codices or codexes, if you prefer, uh, that uh, about which uh, they were found in Jordan a few years ago, and there's been all kinds of... Uh, uh, opinions about them, some credible, some not, and really who the heck is in a position to evaluate them. Uh, well, let's see, uh, some people are, actually, and including a couple of uh, friends of mine. Um, one is Margaret Barker, who uh, many of you know, as I do, as the author of uh, The Great Angel, uh, Study of Israel's Second God, another terrific, uh, fascinating, outside-of-the-box books. And uh, let's see, and uh, also Samuel Zinner. Uh, I uh, have never met uh, either one of them, actually, but corresponded with them, and they're both incredible geniuses, uh, polymaths. Uh, You should look up both of their books, Margaret Barker and Samuel Zinner, Z-I-N-N-E-R. Uh, and uh, th- this guy has written, you would think it was a house name uh, used by different writers. He's written on so many interesting uh, topics, East and West, modern and ancient, uh, esoterica, neat stuff. Anyway, the question was from Mark from Canada. He says, hello, Dr. Geek. What have you to say about the Jordanian codices, eh? Initially discarded as forgeries, the codices, according to recent reports, are now thought by some hosers to be 2,000 years old. The reports are calling the codices the earliest documentation of Jesus and are said to contain a portrait of J.C. and teachings uh, regarding a hermaphrodite godhead. If these documents are 2,000 years old, how might they change our understanding? Understanding of Christianity. Do you have any insight into the authenticity of the Jordanian codices and their contents? Thank you for making America geek again. Okay, and now this is um, the uh, this is rather long. I think it's going to take up the whole episode here. But I think uh, you know you ought to be concerned about this fascinating question if you're a Bible geek, and uh, might as well hear it from the expert's mouth, or his pen, as the case may be. Hence, uh, from here on in, Samuel Zinner. In 2011, news broke of dozens of reputedly ancient small lead books with enigmatic Paleo-Hebrew and Greek texts discovered in a Jordanian cave. First, on the 3rd of March, 2011, the Jewish Chronicle reported on their possible connection with the Bar Kokhba revolt, 132 to 135 CE. Nearly two months later, on the 29th of April, David Elkington, on the BBC claimed they were first century um, CE Christian relics. Elkington is in the news again, spreading word of a recent University of Surrey test that indicates at least two of the lead books are not modern productions. Uh, 
Being described in the press as an archaeologist, biblical scholar, and even a doctor with, you know, DR, uh, with his fo- photographs of the lead books, it became public knowledge in 2011 that Elkington had gained the interest of biblical scholars Margaret Barker and Philip R. Davies, which Elkington described as his academic team. In late 2014, I became interested in Elkington's photographs as well, for reasons explained below. This collaboration resulted in a 2015 publication with contributions by Barker, Davies, Elkington, myself, and others. Davies was cautious, and as for myself, I believe the artifacts were authentic, modern Jewish amulets, not nefarious hoaxes, as several blogging scholars were contending. At the same time, the Center for the Study of the Jordanian Lead Books, all capitals, uh, was being organized by a prominent group of scholars, Margaret Barker, Philip R. Davies, Robert Hayward, Bernard Lang, Yuri Stoyanov, um, yeah, okay, uh, shortly thereafter, my working relationship with uh, Elkington began to deteriorate. My interest in the Jordanian artifacts was rooted in my concern that Jewish items, regardless of their age, were being appropriated by Christians as their own. In the press in 2011, one read claims that the lead books had to be Christian because Jews were forbidden to make images of the seven-branched menorah, an image found in the lead books. And because a face was depicted on one of the lead books, it was said they couldn't be Jewish. If a Jewish scholar had been consulted, these errors could have been easily avoided. Almost all ancient Jewish depictions of the menorah show a seven-branched version, and the faces and full-body representatives of Helios, Moses, Aaron, and a whole host of other anthropomorphic figures were freely depicted in ancient synagogues. The press was astir with the claim that an image of a face on one of the lead book's front and back covers was the earliest known portrait of Jesus. Why was it assumed that it was Jesus? Why not Moses or Aaron? In fact, the image is that of a female, not a male, which is clear from the ampyx, uh, A-M-P-Y-X, that holds the figure's hair in place. The ampyx is more clearly visible on the images of the face on the lead book's inside pages, photographs of which Elkington has refused to make public. Once one has seen the inside page's images, um, the traces of the ampyx can be clearly recognized on the cover images as well, and the Jesus claim vanishes. The image is that of a Greek nymph, not of Jesus, nor even of Helios, the latter being my first guess, now abandoned in light of subsequent research. Another metal book shows a bearded face. A blogger, assuming all these artifacts are modern hoaxes, immediately concluded, under the likely influence of Elkington's general Christian narrative, the bearded face must be intended to portray Jesus. Again, why not Moses, or why not Alexander the Great or Pericles, some of whose bearded images on ancient artifacts are quite similar to the bearded face on the metal book? Or even better, why not Shimon Bar Kokhba, since, after all, the vase appears above imagery similar to what we see on Bar Kokhba coinage?' 
A scrambled version of the name Shimon actually appears above the face and to its side, but it must be Jesus as if no one else could have a beard. Barker's and Davies' views on the lead books were at times misrepresented in the press. In a late 2010 letter to Dr. Peter Thoneman of Oxford University, published in 2011 on the Internet and in part in the Times Literary Supplement, Elkington seemed to imply that Barker and Davies believed one of the artifacts, a, a copper book featuring a crocodile image, was an early 1st century CE object. Barker and Davies have both assured me uh, they were cautious about the artifact and they did not assume it was ancient. Elkington, in his letters, seems to say that he, Barker, and Davies are turning to Thoneman for help in translating a line of Greek. In fact, neither Barker nor Davies can remember seeing Elkington's letter before he sent it to Thoneman, that is, by the way, T-H-O-N-E-M-A-N-N, and of the three, only Elkington, who has no higher academic training in ancient languages, would need uh, anyone's help with a rather simple Greek inscription. Elkington's letter to Dr. Thoneman contains a number of other apparently fabulous claims. He writes of a discovery that I made a few years back of a cachet of ancient metal codices. However, he did not discover the physical artifacts, but learned of them from photographs taken by other journalists. Elkington is now claiming in the press that Jesus' disciples, James, Peter, and John, are named in the lead books. It was I who identified the names John and Shimon, Simon, right, in the lead books, but these are clearly John Hyrcanus and Shimon Bar Kokhba, not Jesus' disciples John and Shimon Peter. I did at one time test the hypothesis whether these two names in the lead books may have been used as simultaneous allusions to Jesus' disciples. But it was only one possibility among others to be investigated for the sake of thoroughness. The name James does not appear in the lead books. Elkington here misrepresents, that is a misrepresentation, sorry. Elkington here misrepresents another of my former unpublished hypotheses tested for the sake of thoroughness, namely, whether the word Israel in the lead books might subtly allude to James, Jacob in Hebrew, Jacob. Uh, since the patriarch Jacob's second name was Israel, and there is thus the possibility that earlier followers of James, that early followers of James could have associated him with the patriarch Jacob on the basis of some sort of prophetic typology. I tested all three hypotheses and have subsequently ruled them out. The only facts are that John Hyrcanus and Shimon Bar Kokhba are referred to in the lead books, and Israel appears in an allusion to the Shema Israel. Hero Israel from Deuteronomy 6.4. Elkington seems to feel free to publicly use my unpublished conversations, tentative musings, many of which were soon abandoned in, earlier, in early drafts of my forthcoming report, reflecting standard scholarly procedure, and research without crediting me. Similarly, his talk of God as male and female is largely borrowed from Margaret Barker's work, another name he fails to credit in the recent tabloid report 
package sponsored by him, but he puts a sensationalistic spin on Barker's and my own research. Certainly talk of God as the male Holy One of Israel, blessed be he, and of his feminine Shekinah is completely traditional in Judaism, but to speak in a newspaper article of the feminine divine or of a female god without qualification or explanation brings to my mind new age ideology more than carefully worded theology. Even worse is Elkington's implication in an article in The Mirror of the 29th of November 2016 that Jesus could have made the land books. This is rank sensationalism founded on ignorance in my trained view. It was I also, it was also I who tentatively identified the name Jesus in the lead books in what appears to be an Amida context A-M-I-D-A-H, congruent with Yehuda Liebes's theory that this prayers uh uh, Karen Yeshua, Horn of Salvation, is an esoteric allusion to Karen Yeshua, Horn of Jesus, uh, that is, Jesus of Nazareth. Bar Kokhba is clearly referred to in the lead books. I take this as certain. A number of eminent scholars have arrived at the same conclusion, regardless of their views on the artifact's age. By contrast, references to Jesus are only possible, and by no means as clear. If the name Jesus is indeed present in the lead books, it would still have to be it would still have to be demonstrated that the references to Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus was a very common name, and indeed one of Bar Kokhba's officers was the Herodian camp commander Jesus ben Galula, G A L Galgula. Sorry about that, G A L G U L A H. Galgula. Okay. And there is, of course, Moses' successor, Joshua, Jesus in Greek. Uh, and Zechariah 4's Joshua, Jesus, the high priest, who appears in the prelude to a menorah vision. But even a reference to Jesus of Nazareth would at best possibly indicate, if at least a core group of these artifacts is ancient, that some of his Jewish followers may have supported Bar Kokhba. This in itself would not make the artifacts Christian. A recent Jordan Times article of uh, December 1st, 2016, quotes Elkington's claim that the lead books have been cleared of the charge of forgery by an unpublished expert study of the writing. I assume Elkington is alluding to my own work, which is designed to be released as a free educational online report for the Center for the Study of the Jordanian Lead Books. Now, while in my report, which studies more than just the epigraphy of the text, I point out some facts overlooked by some scholars who have written online about the lead books, what my report proves is only the possibility of alternate alternative explanations in some instances. For example, Passé, Peter Thoneman, an alpha rendered without a crossbar on a photograph of a copper book he examined, does not in itself prove ignorance of Greek and therefore a hoax. 
Not only was it common for ancient engravers to be illiterate, such was the case with the Qumran copper scrolls engraver, but in fact the use of some alphas with crossbar and others without crossbar on the same line of text is attested in both ancient manuscripts and coins. Neither does the fact that the Greek inscription on the copper book is a snippet from an ancient Nabataean Greek grave monument text on display in a Jordanian Museum, as Thoneman documented, prove a modern hoax, since grave texts have been copied since antiquity for apotropaic purposes, a praxis which even gave rise to religious cults in some cases. You know what uh, apotropaic means, right? You're turning away uh, ill fortunes or hexes cast upon you, uh, right? Okay, um, Subheading alphas with without with and without cross strokes uh, on a Demetrius the Third coin uh, reverse side early second century C.E. and then another one from a uh, second century uh, C.E. Homer Iliad manuscript. Okay, a second example, blogging scholars such as William Hamblin ridiculed the Jordanian copper book's image of a crocodile by writing he knew of no ancient object that could have produced it, uh, and he suggested it was therefore made by a modern plastic crocodile toy. In fact, the copper book's crocodile image approximately matches the style and length, uh, 64.5 millimeters, of an authenticated Roman bronze crocodile brooch dated to about the 2nd to 3rd century CE. There are a plethora of such animals and other, to some of us amusing, themes represented by such ancient Roman brooches. A third example of a different nature, the Jewish Chronicles, March 3, 2011 article on the Jordanian lead books, refers to André Lemaire's conclusion that the lead books apparently represent a case of sophisticated fakes. In the Times Literary Supplement of the 8th of April, 2011, Peter Thoneman referred to the same Jewish Chronicles quote, but changed its sophisticated fakes to obvious fakes. Not only does Thoneman's obvious mean almost the opposite of Lemaire's sophisticated, but in fact the Jewish Chronicle itself failed to accurately report Lemaire's actual opinion. From Lemaire's report, commissioned by Robert Feather, who supplied a copy to the Center for the Study of the Jordanian Lead Books, we learn Lemaire's real conclusions, which I quote here. One can hesitate between two interpretations. One, the, ins the inscriptions in the lead sheets could date from the 2nd century A.D., about the period of the Bar Kokhba War, Two, the inscriptions in the lead sheets are a sophisticated fake made at some time during the last two centuries. Lemaire, in his report, therefore keeps an open mind about the artifacts. They could be ancient, or about 200 years old or less. That the Jewish Chronicle turned this into a conclusion about the artifacts being apparently sophisticated fakes is just as perplexing as Thoneman's transformation of the same into a dismissal of the lead books as obvious fakes. 
These three examples about the letter alpha, ancient crocodile images, and Lemaire's opinion proves that no scholar knows everything, that any scholar can make errors, and that the press often misquotes scholars' opinions. The examples do not prove the lead books are ancient, nor does any no, I'm sorry, nor does my unpublished report, to which I assume Elkington is referring because his statement quoted in the Jordan Times is a blatant case of plagiarism of Bernhard Lang's foreword to my unpublished report. In order to get Elkington's permission to use his photographs in my study, I had to share a copy of it with him via a second party, because I have fallen out of favor with Elkington, and he will not deal with me directly. I quote here from... I'm sorry, I quote here from Lang's foreword to my unpublished report. Meanwhile, the suspicion regarding authenticity sown by bloggers in a note published rashly in the Times Literary Supplement in 2011 has been quietly quelled by several independent scientific tests of the metal. Nobody actually involved with research on the codices has any doubt about the antiquity of at least some of these objects. Compare this with Elkington's statement quoted in the Jordan Times of December 1st, 2016. Uh, the suspicion of forgery sown by the bloggers in a rashly published note in the Times Literary Supplement in 2011 has been disproved by several independent scientific tests of the metal as well as yet unpublished um, a study of the writing. No one of those actually involved with the... Uh, with research on the codices and has any doubt about their antiquity. Not only does Elkington steal the intellectual property of Lang and myself, but he distorts the points we're making as well. What Lang means uh, by authenticity and the quelling of suspicion is not as black and white or clear-cut as Elkington assumes. For instance, authenticity of metal and authenticity of the text on the metal are two separate questions, not to mention which specific metal book or books are being referred to. And Lang's qualifying statement about at least some of these objects is thrown out the back door by Elkington in his act of intellectual theft. There is a great deal of difference between saying, as Elkington does when distorting Lang, no one of those actually involved with research on the codices has any doubt about their antiquity, and Lang's qualified doubt about the antiquity of at least some of these objects. Everyone I know working on these artifacts has suspicions about at least some of them. Talk of their antiquity, therefore, needs to be qualified, not to mention the fact that some of those actually involved with research on the lead books hold open the possibility that they might not be ancient, or, uh, but medieval, or even later, which of course would exclude Elkington's fantasy about them as first-century CE Christian relics. The metal books represent several collections of diverse types and contents. To apply conclusions to them all under the general rubric of the codices, without distinction, is methodologically unsound. To rip Lang's words out of the context of my full report, of which Elkington has seen only a part, and that of an early draft of a text I'm still revising and correcting, um, which they are intended to introduced fundamentally distorts Lang's meaning. 
Elkington claims that evangelical Christians are attacking the lead book's authenticity on theological grounds. However, suspicions about the lead books are not caused by anyone's theology, but by the fact that the artifacts were not found in a controlled excavation, and because they have been extensively associated with reportage with the name of David Elkington, who has no higher academic training pertinent to the interpretation of the lead book's texts, and who is spreading unproven assertions about their contents of a sensationalistic and, in my opinion, often bizarre nature. The suspicion is further deepened by Elkington's refusal to release publicity, I'm sorry, uh, Elkington's refusal to release publicly the over 500 high-resolution photographs he took of the lead books, despite his claim that he wants to avoid a Dead Sea Scrolls-like lack-of-access scandal. By Elkington's own admission, the lead book's owner allowed him to take the photographs strictly for research purposes. Elkington uses the research that trained scholars have conducted on his photographs and on some of the physical artifacts, but now, in contrast to 2011, he does not name these scholars in the press because they now refuse to be labeled as his academic team. However, this does not stop him from cleverly creating the public perception that he is still ahead of an academic team consisting of myself, Barker, Davies, Hayward, Lang, and Stoyanov. His Facebook page prominently displays a video clip of the Center for the Study of the Jordanian Lead Books launch ceremony set on a thumbnail image of Jennifer Elkington, who spoke there briefly. The video is not accompanied by a statement that Jennifer... Uh, has no present association with the center, nor that its scholars' professional ties with her and David have been severed, nor that David never had any official relationship with the center. The center created a role for Jennifer Elkington as a gesture of goodwill, but she resigned in great anger after a few weeks when the center prevented David Elkington from using the center's own unpublished research in one of his own books. Yet the Elkington site goes on to claim to be the official Jordan, Jordan Codicy site, and this Facebook page is moderated by an Anglo-Jordanian team which has been working on the historical, linguistic, and forensic analysis of the Codicy since the discovery was first brought to public attention with a news announcement on the BBC Today show on 29 April 2011. First, the actual official website of the Center for the Study of the Jordanian Lead Books uh, is uh, etc. leadbookcenter.com uh, which is different from Elkington's. Second, contrary to Elkington's claim, the Jewish Chronicle first announced the story on the 3rd of March, 2011. A month later, in early April, the Jordan Times followed suit. Then, nearly another month later, Elkington appeared on the BBC toward the end of April. Elkington's BBC appearance was therefore by no means the first time the public heard of the lead books. Elkington merely wants to create an image of himself as the artifact's discoverer and their authentic first messenger in a bid to control the story. 
Elkington breathes not a word of the earliest announcement about the lead books, which was in a Jewish Chronicle article that featured Robert Feather, with whom Elkington early on had a personal falling out, as a later 2011 BBC expose revealed. Further, Feather, who, on the basis of André Lemaire's analysis, believes that the artifact's texts, regardless of their age, pertain to the Bar Kokhba revolt, does not buy into Elkington's Christian interpretation of the lead books. The artifact started out as a Jewish story. Elkington's complete silence on this fact seems to fit the larger pattern of Christian appropriation of things Jewish, followed by a suppression, to various degrees, of the Jewish nature of what has been thus appropriated. Besides, few Christians care about Bar Kokhba, and a first-century CE Christian narrative about the lead books is more sensationalistic and therefore likely to garner broader public and book publishers' interest. For the record, my own falling out with David Elkington involved the following, among other grievances. Elkington arranged a Saturday, April 4, 2015, interview for me about the Jordan Codices on the American radio talk show Coast to Coast AM, instructing me to announce on the broadcast that the website of the newly launched center was the Facebook site referred to above. Hours before my appearance on Coast to Coast, AM, the latter's website, posted the following sensationalist blurb about my imminent interview. Followed by Samuel Zenner, a multidisciplinary researcher who'll update us on the Jordan Codices, 70 ancient metal books that might change the world's view of biblical history and prove not only the existence of Christ, but his resurrection too. I was not happy with this wording, given its profound illogic and absurdity, as if any artifact could prove there was an historical Jesus, let alone a resurrection. I immediately protested to Coast to Coast AM, asking that this sensationalistic formulation be replaced with something more carefully worded. I also informed Elkington that I would not appear on Coast to Coast AM, Elkington had connections and influence there, if the latter did not change the sensationalistic blurb. Within hours, the original blurb was changed on the Coast to Coast AM website. After learning about the purely personal nature of the Elkington Facebook site, I took another look at it. To my displeasure, I found, besides various pseudo-scientific stories, an April 3, 2015 entry containing the original sensationalistic Coast to Coast AM blurb that I'd protested about to both Coast to Coast AM and Elkington. To add insult to injury, in the early days of April 2015, I had clearly explained to Elkington that I thought of the interview date as Passover, not Easter, and yet there on his site he refers to giving me an Easter interview. In November 2015, I emailed Coast to Coast AM asking them to replace the Facebook site listed by my photo in their guest archive with, uh, you know, the real one. Uh, the last time I checked, no change had been made. For well over a year, therefore, the Coast to Coast AM website has linked my guest archive page to Elkington's personal Facebook site, and the latter, for the same period of time, has had my name next to what is for me as a scholar not only a sensationalistic blur, but one that is personally offensive to me as well. 
Elkington's mythos that the lead books are first-century Christian relics related to Jesus is impossible. Of the lead books thus far tested, their epigraphy, which is sometimes partially of Hasmonean style, mostly agrees with second-century C.E. Bar Kokhba period styles. Moreover, there were references to emperors Commodus and Geta in the collection, which means the lead books could date at the earliest to only about 200 CE. Of course, Elkington doesn't know this because he can't read the Greek on the lead books and because he has fallen out of favor with scholars such as myself who can. He has not seen the later draft of my report with the Commodus and Geta identifications. If some of the artifacts are, are ancient, at the earliest they would have been made around the first quarter of the 3rd century CE or thereafter by partly using molds that had been created around the time of Bar Kokhba. This could explain why several of the molds have been damaged, which is clear from many of the transfers of their images in the lead books. The molds were apparently already old when they were used to create the lead books. Whatever the artifacts age, Jesus and the earliest Christians are not the center of the lead books. They are instead about Bar Kokhba and his struggles on behalf of Israel. And if any are indeed ancient, they would seem to include some views of the support Bar Kokhba may have had among Jewish followers who were Jews, not Christians, and Nabataeans as well. At the time of Bar Kokhba, the Jewish Jesus sect was an entirely Jewish phenomenon, so that even if the lead books had been created by such Jesus followers, the artifacts would still be Jewish, not Christian, and they would still be mainly about Bar Kokhba's revolt, not about Jesus. A connection with, the Bar, with Bar Kokhba is certain. One with Jesus is possible. But again, which Jesus, Joshua, would it be? Elkington's claim that the lead books shed light on the historical Jesus is absurd and an utter impossibility. Elkington heaps impossibility upon possibility and in his own mind arrives at not probability but certitude. As a result, artifacts, again leaving aside the question of their age, relating to an ancient genocide against Jews, namely the quashing of the Bar Kokhba revolt, are not only being appropriated for Christian ends but even transformed into purported Christian artifacts. Is this not arguably a form of cultural looting, like the looting of archaeological artifacts is? Now, as in 2011, the best thing to do is simply to ignore the public carnival on both sides and continue to work behind the scenes with the relevant, appropriate government and other related agencies. If we are ever to get to the bottom of just what the Jordanian lead books are, it will be by slow, patient, and careful behind-the-scenes scholarly investigative work, not by heated blog discussions, even those by reputable scholars, or by reportage of a sensationalistic nature. What we're seeing now is a repeat of the 2011-style press coverage and the often understandable negative scholarly reaction against it. 
Elkington obviously hopes to rehabilitate the lead book's reputation and public opinion partly in a bid to gain a lucrative book contract, but with his sensationalistic approach, he's only shooting himself in his own foot, as the saying goes. Scholars are not going to listen to Elkington. Uh, They didn't in 2011 when he armed himself with metal test results, and they won't in 2016 when he has armed himself again with additional metal test results. He should be patient and let scholars and scientists announce their own findings. Then, as now, Ellington overlooks the fact that metal tests cannot prove metal is ancient, only that it is congruent with antiquity. Such antiquity is never determined by a single kind of test, but by a whole range of factors. At best, atomic testing can show that a lead artifact must be at least 200 years of age if its alpha particle emissions at um, 5.3 MeV megavolts, I don't know what the heck, uh, have dropped to zero. This was indeed the case with the three years of atomic testing done on the Department of Antiquities Jordan's lead, of Jordan's lead books at the Amman Atomic Energy Commission from 2011 to 2013 and with the 2016 University of Surrey test. The scholarly assessment of the artifact's contents should be left to trained experts whose Private, tentative findings should not be quoted in public without permission or be taken out of their original contexts. However, the scholarly investigation of the artifacts is hampered by the fact that Elkington denies access to his full set of photographs to any scholar critical of him and his sensationalistic views. Of course, just as New Age authors have a perfect right to publish popular Kabbalah books that do not reflect traditional Kabbalah as reconstructed by scholars, so Elkington, like any other New Age writer, is free to publish his ideas about the lead books that scholarship would would consider unfounded, even quite preposterous. But no one, Elkington included, is free to steal scholars' published or unpublished research, potentially distorted in the press, in order to make money off of lucrative book deals, especially not when the scholars involved have invested their time and work on the topic largely gratis. Okay, well, that ought to settle the question, at least uh, in terms of uh, skewering these sensationalistic claims we're hearing. And once again, it kind of reminds you of the question of uh, how long would it take for the sayings of Jesus to have been embellished and distorted? Apparently not very, right? Uh, anyhow, um, yeah, let's see. Uh, uh, let me uh, stick a uh, one, one more question, one actual question on here from Michael Ducek. He says, as an interesting observation, on a recent podcast, you were asked about the disappearance of deists and opined that the advancement of science left deistic beliefs unnecessary. While this is true, Bruce Carlson points out, pointed out on his uh, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics.wordpress.com podcast that deists also got a real black eye from their association with the French Revolution and the Committee of Public Safety and the bloodbath that followed. I'm glad you pointed that out, right? Yeah, because remember they had the goddess reason and all that stuff. And 
if reason leads to the reign of terror, you know, people are going to say, uh, we made a wrong point in Albuquerque. Um, boy, um, let's see. Well, I think I'm going to knock it off for today and be back to uh, the regular question format next time, which I hope will be real soon. I appreciate your interest in the Bible Geek and in my books, and I appreciate your support on Patreon or just uh, occasional gifts through PayPal. Um, our uh, household budget is certainly uh, in need of both, and I and my family are very, very grateful for, for your help. So, see you next time on the next exciting or inciting, perhaps, edition of The Bible Geek.